Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Well, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds. And we are in a series called, What Does the Bible Say About Sexuality? And uh, in this series, we've looked at a bunch of different things. Uh, we began two weeks ago by looking at heterosexuality. And we looked at what does the Bible say about marriage and what does the Bible say about dating and what our sexuality should be like when we're dating. And I just would commend that message to you. If you were not here for it, go to crosswinds.tv and either listen to it or connect with it and learn about what the Bible says. Uh, Last week, we moved from heterosexuality to homosexuality. And the goal of last week's message was to put our finger in the text and see what the Bible says. We looked at seven key passages in the Bible on homosexuality, and we we just explained them. And I would encourage you, if you have not heard that message, to once again go to crosswinds.tv because if you want to talk, about, talk to anybody intelligently on this subject, you really need to know what the Bible says. There's a lot of opinions and not a lot of actual biblical facts because people just haven't studied it. So that message will help you. Now that's what we did for the last two weeks. The next two weeks are going to be a little different. First of all, you know that next week we're taking a break from this series. It's a very special week. It's sort of our fall kickoff celebration week, and it's different. Here's how I'm going to help you remember it. We have two campuses, and we have two services. And next week, they're all coming together as one at what time? 10 o'clock. See the hand signals for this? Let's see if you guys can remember this. Ready? Hands up. Come on. Let's go. Everyone, participation. We have two campuses and we have two services that are coming together next week at what time? 10 o'clock. All right. That will help you remember it for next week. Uh, the following week, we're going to, after that, we'll, we'll finish up this series on uh, sexuality. We're going to look at what does the Bible say about transgender. And we'll also spend, we're not going to spend a ton of time on transgender, but we're going to spend a good part of our time on how do you minister to somebody who is struggling with opposite sex desires or or strange sexual desires, and that'll be something we'll focus on. So we've talked about the past, we've talked about the future, but we should probably talk about the present. Like, what are we going to study this morning? We're in our second part of the homosexuality series. The first part was when we looked at seven key verses. Today we're going to look at six common questions. These are six common questions that you find people asking all the time in this discussion on homosexuality, same-sex marriage, and the Christian faith. I was asked after the first service, you know, do you really like talking about this stuff? Quite honestly, no. I derive very little joy out of this subject. I would much rather be preaching through Genesis, which is what we're going to do when we get to the fall. Uh, But the reason we're doing this is because we need to know these answers. You may not face these questions every day. Our children are facing these questions every day. These questions are posted on the internet 
all the time on Facebook. And people are putting a little, you know, umbrellas or uh, not umbrellas, excuse me, rainbows up there all the time. And unless you have fought through this stuff, it's very easy to get swept away with the cultural current. And somebody needs to be able to give good answers to the kind of questions we're going to look at today. And God is calling that person to be you. Because last week you learned the text. This week you're learning to think clearly and look at the answers. So this is very important stuff. And I actually, I'd like to just pause right before we get into these questions. I'd like to pause and just pray and ask that God would really guard my mouth and He would open our hearts as we examine these very important subjects. Dear Jesus, we come before you, and as we look at these questions, I pray that you would put a guard on my lips. I pray that you would help us to remember what is pure and what is good and what is helpful, and help us to be able to give good answers to the common questions that people are asking that would seek to erode our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, get your notes out. As promised, you guys have some very thick notes for this series, so you have lots of take-home material. Here's the first question that you see asked many times. You know, if homosexuality is wrong, why doesn't the Bible talk about it more? The way this question is often posed is, you know, the Bible talks about homosexuality, maybe there's about seven key fragments, and that's often the term that is used. They're just fragments that talk about this. How can seven small verses be used to keep homosexuals out of acceptance in the church for thousands of years? How can seven small passages be tearing apart entire denominations and entire families. The Bible has 30,000, over 30,000 verses, and you're letting seven small ones destroy the lives and acceptance of so many? That's the way the question is posed. How would you answer it? Well, the reason the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about homosexuality is because homosexuality was sort of like an uncontroversial sin for the Jews. It was an uncontroversial sin for the entire Christian church during the time of the forming of the canon. There was never a time where the Jews or the Christians ever tolerated homosexuality, much less ever celebrated homosexuality. The Bible talks a lot about idolatry. It talks a lot about social injustice. It talks about pagan worship because those are the things that God's people were constantly struggling with. Everybody sort of automatically knew that homosexuality was wrong. That's why it doesn't speak too much about it. Simply counting up the number of verses and then weighing it against the total number of verses in the Bible is not like the, the best way to determine the seriousness of a sin. There are some things the Bible speaks even less about that the Bible says are even more serious. Like, did you know there are less verses in the Bible on child abuse than there are about homosexuality? Well, that doesn't make child abuse more acceptable. Obvious. That being stated you do need to know that the Bible does say a fair amount about homosexuality. 
Last week, we looked at the seven key passages. Those are the ones that you often hear brought up when there's any kind of Scripture that's uh, being used to discuss homosexuality. But that, that is not the exhaustive list. Actually, there are a total of 11 passages that talk about homosexuality in the Bible. Uh, we looked at the seven major ones. The rest ones are considered minor, where it's sort of referenced to, but not discussed explicitly. I put those, those Bible verses down here in your, in your notes so you can be able to go to those in discussions with people and be able to, to use those in your conversations. But if you want to continue to expand that, and look at the times where homosexuality is talked about as part of a pagan cultic practice, there's an additional eight times. So the Bible technically talks about homosexuality 19 times. And every single time it talks about it, it talks about it negatively. Nothing positive is said. So the Bible does speak consistently and it speaks very clearly about homosexuality and that it is not an acceptable alternative lifestyle. One of my favorite quotes from this is a very short one. It comes from a man named Pim Pronk. Well, I didn't name the guy, just an interesting name. He is a gay Dutch Bible scholar. So this guy is a homosexual. And when this homosexual who's very smart looks at the Bible, this is what he says. Wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. Rejection is a foregone conclusion. So when the gay homosexual Bible scholar is telling you that the Bible says absolutely nothing good about homosexuality, then you can pretty much go with that. Now, lest I spend too much time and overbalance this message on just homosexuality, let me expand it out to look at um, sexual immorality in general. That's the Greek word pornea, where we get our English word pornography from. And pornea technically means any kind of sexual expression outside of the marriage covenant. That is premarital sex. That is extramarital sex. That includes homosexuality. That includes all these things. And when you look at where the Bible talks about sexual immorality, that is expressing yourself outside of the marriage context, you find that it talks about sexual immorality frequently, quite frequently. In fact, it's hard to find a sin in the Bible that the Bible talks about more frequently than sexual immorality of any form because God's pattern for the Christian life is that we would live a sexually pure life. For instance, the Bible has eight vice lists, and you might want to know what a vice list, technically vice lists come from the Stoics. They're a, a list of things of negative qualities is generally what it means. The vice lists in the Scripture are qualities of those who are living apart from Christ. What does a life that is in rebellion against God look like? Eight vice lists. Sexual immorality is in every single vice list. In fact, it is the number one item on many of the vice lists. Very clear what the Bible says about this. So let me just read three of the vice lists to show you what I mean. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, that is, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, 
which is idolatry. Or Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and with sulfur, which is the second death. Or Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And here goes the vice list. Sexual immorality, number one item. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the Bible speaks frequently about homosexuality, technically 19 times. But if you expand that out to talk about sexual immorality, it speaks about it all the time. In every single vice list, that is a description of those who live apart from God, it's in the list or it heads the list because God's plan for Christians is to live a sexually pure life. It's abundantly clear. The next question that you often hear is this. Well, doesn't the Bible only refer to violent and abusive homosexuality? If you were here last week, you know we dealt with this question at that time. Because what often happens is people will say, after you show them all the Scripture in the Bible about homosexuality, and they say, well, I'm sort of in a corner. I really can't get out of this. Even Pim Pronk is it saying that it's uh, very clear that God's Word is against homosexuality. It calls it a sin. Same-sex marriage doesn't work. Well, maybe the homosexuality the Bible talks about is nothing like the homosexuality that we see today. Let me quote for you from the book that we spent some time critiquing last week, which is the Bible's Yes to Same-Sex Marriage by Mark Actemeyer. This is what he says. The Scripture provides no concrete examples of God's blessing of same-sex marriage. And here's why. This is because mutually loving egalitarian marriages between gay partners were simply not available op an available option for ordinary people during the times when the Bible was written. So he says, if <laughs> at the time the Bible was written for 4,000 years of church history, there was no such thing as loving egalitarian same-sex relationships. Okay. Put your head on that. Think about this. Does that make any sense? Like there were no homosexuals for 4,000 years that actually wanted to be together? No. Like nothing is new under the sun, right? It's been going on that way for years. Secondly, this is historical ignorance. Has anybody ever studied ancient Rome or Greece and what the life was like then? Yeah. Homosexuality, homosexuality was rampant. And it was a violent homosexuality, plus it was a consensual homosexuality. Was there homosexuality where it was men forcing themselves on boys? Yes. Was there homosexuality where it was masters homosexually forcing themselves on slaves? Yes. But there was plenty of consensual homosexuality, like modern-day same-sex relationships that took place all throughout antiquity. Nothing is new. But to me... The real nail in the coffin of this argument comes from a guy named 
Louis, uh, excuse me, Louis Crompton. And this guy, I love his title. His title is Professor of Queer Studies. Hey, he gave it to himself. I didn't write that down. Professor of Queer Studies, he writes this major book called Homosexuality and Civilization, where he traces out homosexuality across civilizations across time. Brilliant guy, and he is a homosexual, and this is what he says. Some interpreters seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness have read the passage, he's speaking about Romans 1, as condemning not homosexuals generally, but only heterosexual men and women who were experimenting with homosexuality. According to this interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. But such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any Jew or early Christian. So the idea that the homosexuality in the Bible was always violent and abusive, but today we have loving, um, monogamous, committed, egalitarian marriages that if only Paul had known about, he would have certainly approved it. It's not true. It makes absolutely no sense. It is faulty history. And even the gay scholars don't agree with it. You need to know this, guys, because this is a common argument. It is one of the most common arguments I have read in the revisionist literature. Now let's move on. Let's say, hold on. There we go. Let's move on to question number three. And we're going to tease this question apart with some sub-questions, but it is a very important one. You often hear this. Why would God give people homosexual desires and not want them fulfilled? Maybe you've listened to the argumentation. You've seen when you put your finger in the text, you have seven major passages against homosexuality, 19 total passages that all speak negatively against sexuality. So you agree that the Bible says nothing positive about it. And the cultural distance argument that we just talked about, you see it, it doesn't work. It's, there's no such thing, nothing new under the sun. But maybe for you, but you have a friend who's a homosexual, and they're struggling with their sexuality. They want to express their sexuality, and they don't know how to do that because they don't see the Bible affirming it. Maybe you have a son or a daughter who's a homosexual, and they'd love to have that kind of close marital bond relationship, but they don't know how to express themselves because everything they seem to do would just be a homosexual desire which would just be wrong. And you say, you know, what are we supposed to do? There's no way that it seems my sexual desires can be fulfilled and it's not my fault. I was born that way. Is it true? Were people with homosexual desires born that way? Or was it a choice they made somewhere along the way? 
Is there a homosexual gene? Let's think about this. The first thing you need to look at is what I looked at from the American Psychological Association. They have a, a, a statement that they have made uh, about where sexual orientation comes from. Let me read this. And I'm gonna, if you have your, pen, your pens or your pencils out, I'm going to give you some things to underline. It says, the causes of sexual orientation, whether homosexual or heterosexual, are not known at this time and likely are multifactorial including biological, circle that one, and behavioral, circle that one, behavioral roots, which may vary between individuals and may even vary over time. Circle that phrase, may vary over time. Three things you need to know. Someone's sexual orientation, no one knows exactly what generates it, but it's biologically based, like men are attracted to women, but it's also behaviorally influenced. That means if you take a young man and he's in that puberty area of his life and he's young and he's put off to an institution and in that institution he is sodomized by older men, that will be very formative in his sexual desires as he grows up. And the other thing to remember is this, that even though somebody finds themselves in a homosexual orientation, that doesn't mean that they'll be there forever. Orientations, sexual desire orientations, have been known to change over time. Very important. Other thing you need to know on this, and it's very clear. By the way, this idea that there's a homosexual gene and people are born this way genetically, there has never been a study that has definitively proven that there is such a thing as a homosexual gene. It's just not out there. Remember what the statement said by the American Psychological Association, it's biological and it's behavioral. It's like nature and nurture, you know, both of these things going on. And even if there was such a thing as a homosexual gene, and even if someone unconsciously has chosen homosexual desires because, say, they were sodomized or they went through a really rough upbringing, even if they have those desires and it's through no conscious choice of their own, that does not mean that they have a freedom or a right to express those desires. Isn't that true? Each one of us is fully responsible for our... Um, sexuality, and we're responsible for how we res express our sexuality. Let me show you what I mean. I assume most of us in this uh, room are heterosexual in our desire. Now, as heterosexuals, can't we very clearly say there are times that we have heterosexual desires for someone of the opposite sex that we dare not fulfill? Very true. We have to choose to restrain ourselves. This is not just before marriage. This is even in marriage. Men are in the office, and there's sometimes time where they have that situation where there's a spark that's going between them and another woman, and there's attraction there. And what do we have to do as men? Restrain ourselves and save ourselves only for our bride. So the idea of needing to restrain your sexual desires is not just a homosexual issue. It's also a heterosexual issue. And we all have to do it. And by the way, 
we all have uh, certain proclivities towards particular sins that we have to restrain ourselves from. And sometimes uh, those desires for those sins are very strong. Isn't this true? Like, for instance, uh, I may get this statistic wrong, but I'm just quoting it from what I can remember. They say, what is it, one in seven people have the tendency to become an alcoholic if they drink because it's biologically rooted in their life. So that means that one in every seven people have to be particularly careful about their drinking because they are biologically predisposed to become an abusive alcoholic. So that doesn't mean you have a green light to become an alcoholic. It just means fighting alcoholism is harder for you than it is for others. And it may mean that you cannot drink at all because you're predisposed to that. It doesn't give you a green light to sin. Or how about heterosexuals that are in their teens and in their 20s? You know, they say that's the time when your testosterone for both men and women is, is at its peak and its strongest, and your sexual desires are particularly strong much stronger than you were younger and not as strong as when you're older, but because you are at your peak testosterone level and you are extremely sorely tempted sexually with your desires, that doesn't give you a green light to then therefore go fornicate. You still have to keep your sexual desires under control and save them for your wedding night. It's the same as heterosexuals as it is for homosexuals. Some of us... Uh, have a tendency to get angry, and we can raise our voice. We have a short fuse. Anybody here? Okay, yeah, uh, okay, yeah. Some of us are willing to admit it. The rest of us just won't admit it, but many of us have that sort of short fuse. And you can't sit there and say, well, the reason I yell is because I'm Irish, therefore I can get away with it. No, it just means that you have to work extra hard to control your temper, Right? It's the exact same thing. Therefore, if you have people who have homosexual desires, they have to focus on restraining the expression of those desires, just like heterosexuals. The Bible says this in Jeremiah 17.9, that the heart is desperately wicked. Simply put, sometimes we desperately want sinful things. True. And we have to work hard to restrain ourselves from them. So, when some, it says, somebody says, I was born homosexual, that doesn't give you a green light to express those desires. Secondly, which is a very interesting thing, is this. If people were born homosexual, and it's a biological thing, and they can say, I'm not responsible for it, then why can they change? Did you know that? People sometimes change their sexual orientation. Let me give you some examples. In my reading, I ran across a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. She grew up with a homosexual orientation. She went on to become a lesbian professor. She was introduced to the gospel. She trusted in Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She repented of her lesbian lifestyle, went through a major change. Not did she just repent of her lesbian lifestyle, but God changed her very sexual desires. She got married, she has kids, and now she is, a, she is a homeschooling mother. Now, can you imagine that at the homeschool mothering you know, time? All the kids are together, and one lady says, oh, let's share testimonies. Like, you know, like she shares hers, and everyone else's mouth just drops right off. Yeah, I was a former lesbian professor. I'll give you another one. 
Jackie Hill Perry. She is a Christian rapper. You can look her up online. She grew up lesbian. And she talks about in her testimony about having lesbian desires that began when she was only five years old. When she repented of her sin and read God's Word and saw her lesbian uh, desires as sinful, not only did she just not sin in that way, but she repented of it and God changed her sexual desires. And now she's married and she's a mother and she's a Christian rapper. Pretty cool to see how God changed that. Give you an example from another standpoint that I know more personally. When I went to college, my academic advisor for my computer science program, he was a former homosexual. Uh, was involved in the homosexual lifestyle, was introduced to Christ, uh, identified his homosexuality as sin, confessed it, trusted in Jesus, ended up with a whole different sexual orientation. He's married. He has children, went to become, on to become a Christian professor at a Christian college, and today he is an active member of an evangelical free church in Pennsylvania. People change. And they change because Jesus Christ doesn't just convict us of our sin, but he forgives us of our sin, and he changes the very sinful nature about us on the inside, so he changes people's orientation. Very cool stuff. So continuing to dive into this issue of what about people who are, say they're a born homosexual. Well, sexual desires can change. And here's another common one I've seen many times that the pro-homosexual group, this is a question they ask. They say, what if you are a homosexual and you don't have the gift of celibacy? And the way they ask the question is this. Paul talks about him having a special gift and he having the gift of celibacy. And they say, that's a special gift from God. But what if I'm a homosexual and I have those sexual desires, but God has not given me the gift of celibacy. And you're telling me I have to remain celibate, but I don't have the gift. I can't do it. In fact, a quote for you from Mark Actemeyer, uh, who is the book that we critiqued last week. He says this, it was also clear from all the stories of brokenness that I encountered that Christie and many others were not able to embrace a lifelong commitment to celibacy without crippling spiritual and psychological consequences. And his argument is you can't ask homosexuals who don't have this gift of celibacy to be celibate for their entire life. His exact statement is, you are functionally castrating them. How could you do that and be so unloving? How would you answer somebody? Let me show you how to think through this. Number one, it assumes that those with homosexual desires will never repent and change their orientation. But as we just saw, homosexuality is an act, is sin, and even the homosexual desires inside of people is rooted in the sinfulness of nature. But Jesus Christ changes those things. And people change. And people who are homosexuals may have to begin by trying to obey Christ by being celibate. And then God changes their orientation. And they meet someone of the opposite sex who loves Jesus. And they get married. And they have children. And guess what? God wasn't asking them to spend their entire life in celibacy. All He was asking them to do is to repent of their sin and to own their sin and let Jesus Christ change them. 
Secondly, and this is very important, if chastity or celibacy is too much to ask of a person with same-sex desires, it is also too much to ask of a person with heterosexual desires, isn't it? In other words, what about the young single girl who just desperately wants to meet a great Christian young man and wants to be a wife and wants to be a a mother and have a whole tribe of kids? That's her dream. She prays about it all the time, but God never brings that right man into her life. She goes on and she gets older, and does that mean that she has a right all of a sudden to start fornicating around? She has to give up her chastity because God hasn't provided for her. And she said, I don't have the gift of celibacy. I want to be married. Absolutely not. God has told her to be celibate until the wedding night and until God provides the right person she needs to be. It's the same for heterosexuals as it is for homosexuals. Nothing changes. Or what about the husband and wife, the the young newlyweds? And uh, she is in a car accident, and she is vegetized, and she's functionally not able to get out of bed, and her, her mind is really totally messed up, and there's not much functionality for this young man's wife. And for the next 30 years, he has to care for her, and sexuality is no longer part of that marriage relationship, and he has to remain celibate. Does this mean he should go to the Ashley Martin website where it says, life is short, have an affair, and have one? Because he doesn't have the gift of celibacy. No. It's the same thing for heterosexuals as it is for homosexuals. We may not have the gift of celibacy, but God is calling us to remain celibate unless it is expressed in marriage. Give you an example uh, that of a guy that I'm working with now. He's a He's in the military, and he's deployed for a year at a time overseas. He doesn't see his wife. doesn't have the gift of celibacy. He'll tell me that right up front. But because he's away from his wife for a year, does that give him the right to have an affair with a woman in his unit? Or would that give her the right to have an affair with somebody where she's staying until he comes back? No. doesn't have the gift of celibacy, but you need to remain celibate. Let me go ahead and uh, flip over to page four. <coughs> Another sub-question on this issue. Why would God want me sexually miserable? You'll see homosexuals will write this all the time. They'll say, I discovered I had same-sex desires. And I tried to find acceptance in the church, but the church wouldn't accept me for who I am with my same-sex desires. They w- they wouldn't endorse it. I tried to tell my family, and they, they wouldn't accept my homosexuality and affirm it. And I felt miserable. I felt terrible. I, I just felt dark, and I felt lonely and rejected. Why would God want me sexually miserable? But then I decided that I would just go the opposite direction. I'd celebrate my homosexuality. I would embrace it, and I would get involved in a homosexual relationship. And when I did... I felt so much better about myself. I felt so much happier and sexually fulfilled. It must be God's will for me to be endorsing and experiencing and expressing my same-sex desires because I feel so much better when I do. 
How would you answer somebody who says that? That God doesn't want us sexually miserable. Here's the way I'd answer it. There's a difference between what feels right and what is right. There's a difference between what feels right in life and what is right in life. Sin, many times, feels right, doesn't it? Otherwise, it wouldn't be called temptation to sin. There would be no temptation and lure about it if it didn't feel good. But as Christians, we're not about living for what feels right. We're about living from what the Bible says is right. We're about submitting and obeying God's will and God's Word, even when it's hard, even when it hurts. It's called living by faith. To prove this to you, let's just flip this out of a homosexual context and put it back into a heterosexual context. Imagine a young woman who's in a very difficult marriage at home. It's fighting and difficulty between her and her husband. But at the office, she meets a, a, a nice man, a man who always affirms her, and she finds herself sexually attracted to this other man, and so she gets involved and has an affair with this other man. And she finds it all delightful, so she divorces her husband at home, and marries the man she's having an affair with. And she says, this must have been God's will because I feel so much better. I'm so much happier right now. There's no more conflict at home. It's just delight between the two of us. Folks, there's a difference between what feels right and what is right. Sin always feels right, at least at first. But as Christians, we submit ourselves to God's will, and we do what is right. Titus chapter 11 through 12, or chapter 2, 11 through 12, says this clearly. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Those are the things that feel good. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Those are the things that are right. In the present age. So as long as you can separate those two, when somebody says, I feel so much better that I'm involved in my same-sex relationship, <laughs> feelings don't help you when you stand before God. Here is a very important one. This one's going to take some good thinking on your part, but it's very crucial you understand this, not just for homosexuality, but for life following Christ. Will practicing homosexuals go to heaven because Jesus forgives their sin? Will a practicing homosexual go to heaven because they say Jesus has forgiven their sin? Isn't that what you hear? Well, I know that maybe homosexuality is not the best thing for me, but Jesus forgives all of our sin. He for, forgives your sin. He forgives my sin. I, I, I've asked Jesus to forgive my sin, so even though it's not the best, I'll be in heaven right next to you. Maybe not as highly honored as you are, but I'll, I'll be there. Is that true? How would you answer somebody who said that to you? Let's think this through. Is it true that the only way anyone goes to heaven is by God's grace, through faith? Yes. But here's the rub. The biblical gospel is those who go to heaven 
are not just those who have asked Jesus to forgive their sin. It's those who have repented of their sin and asked Jesus to forgive their sin. Repentance of sin is the foundation that trust in Christ is built on. Let me show you what I mean. And saying this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's not just believe. It's repent of your sin and believe. Identify your sin. Confess your sin and then believe. Nobody will be in heaven simply because they've trusted in Christ, but they failed to repent of their sin. You must repent and then believe. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Now the, He commands all people everywhere to repent. Is the church for broken people? Yes. But it's for broken people who are repentant about what is broken in them, not who are celebrating and delighting in what is broken about them. You see the difference? Luke 13.5 says, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is a very important part of the gospel. And many times, and I've been guilty of this, I've said to people, trust in Christ to forgive your sins. But technically, it's repent of your sins and then trust in Christ to forgive your sins. Now, John writes in 1 John about the importance of repentance in our relationship with God. Now, I want you, I'm going to read this here, and you'll see it almost sounds like he could put unrepentant homosexuality right in the verse. And when he talks about this and about continuing in sin, he's talking about somebody who knows what is wrong and what is sinful in their life, but they refuse to repent of it. They keep doing the same thing, like unrepentant homosexuality. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So we're not talking about, hey, you sin and then you repent. This is talking about somebody who's making a regular practice of sinning. They're from the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who, the children, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So when somebody says to you, Jesus forgives all my sin, and I'm just going to continue to practice my homosexuality because it's really not a big deal, you're like, no. You need to repent, and if you refuse to repent and you have no desire to repent, it means you're a child of the devil. That's just Scripture. Number five, what should I know about the legalization of same-sex marriage? June 26, 2015, Supreme Court legalizes same-sex marriage. You need to know, first of all, Prior to the legalization of same-sex marriage, the government was not criminalizing homosexual behavior. 
Nothing criminal about it. Prior to the legalization of same-sex marriage, they were not prohibiting homosexuals from committing to themselves, either in public celebrations or religious ceremonies. People were getting married. Homosexuals were getting married in religious ceremonies. Not the ones you'd have in this church, but you know what I'm talking about. Nothing stopped that. Prior to this, uh, they were not legislating what people could or could not do in their bedroom. The legalization of same-sex marriage means this, and circle these words, forced recognition of equality. Forced recognition of equality of same-sex marriages to traditional heterosexual marriages. Like it or not. Essentially, the government is saying this, that two daddies and two mommies are no different in raising a child than having a mother and a father. You could not say having a mother and a father is better than having two mommies because they're forced equality. Secondly, they say procreation is now unimportant to marriage because the only kind of marriage relationship that has kids is a heterosexual one. So marriage is not really about children anymore. Thirdly, the definition of marriage can now be further expanded. For thousands of years, it was just heterosexual, one man and one woman. Now, you watch, it's going to be one man and two women, or two men and one You watch, it's going to start changing all over the place. This is just the beginning. But probably most importantly for us to realize is this. Those who do not agree with same-sex marriage will be forced into submission. Circle these words, forced into submission. And this is where it forces us to be touched by it. Every single one of us will be touched by the legalization of same-sex marriage. To give you an example, many of you know that as an evangelical free church, we have two schools in our denomination. The one that we're most familiar with is Trinity International University in Chicago. Great school. It's an undergraduate school. It has a graduate level seminary program and doctoral programs. We're probably less familiar with this sister school called Trinity Western University, located on the West Coast. And by the way, this is a big school. Trinity Western is bigger than Trinity International in Chicago. Trinity Western has 3,500 students. It has 45 undergraduate programs, 17 graduate programs, 157-acre campus. Huge. It is the largest private collegiate institution in Canada. As for academic excellence, since 2005, every year it has been rated A+. Top-notch academic school. Christian. Associated with us. It's, our, it's a school of our denomination. Proud of it. And here's where it gets interesting. July of 2012, Trinity Western, our school, decided that they would uh, offer a doctorate of law degree. And to offer that, they had to have it officially accredited, and they applied to the Ministry of Education in Canada, plus they applied to the Canadian Legal Society. Everything would seem to go fine. You have a top-notch academic school, large school, very good reputation. In fact, everything went through smoothly, and a little over a year later, in December of 2013, their accreditation for their Doctorate of Law program was approved. 
But then the Canadian Legal Society, over in uh, June of 2014, like, like a year ago, began raising questions about it. In fact, as of December of 2014, the accreditation of the school was revoked. Now, you might ask, why was our school's accreditation revoked? Here's the deal. Had nothing to do with academics, had nothing to do with the performance, but Trinity Western University asks students to sign a code of conduct sheet when they come to school. The code of conduct sheet, on that sheet, it asks them to refrain from premarital sexuality, it asks them to refrain from extramarital sexuality, and it just shows you the scriptural basis as to why they say that, sort of like we've been preaching through here. And it asks you also to refrain from homosexuality, from expressing homosexuality. It doesn't say anything about homosexual desires, just don't pursue homosexuality when you're a student here at a Christian university. The Canadian Legal Society says that is discrimination because same-sex marriage is legal in Canada. So they revoked the school's accreditation. How would you like that? Graduate from a prestigious law school, but you can't practice law because your school's not accredited, because you won't affirm same-sex marriage and homosexuality to be practiced on your campus. That's our school. That's the debate that is happening right now. The president of the Trinity Western University came to the National Convention of the Evangelical Free Church that I was at earlier in the summer, and he updated us on this personally, and he asked that the, all the evangelical free churches would remember Trinity Western University as they're involved in this battle. Uh, it's interesting because the president of the Trinity Western University is a former lawyer. In fact, it's now it's the Trinity Western University Law School taking the Canadian Legal Society to court. So you have like two high-powered lawyers battling this out. And so we'll see where this goes. But this is really a, a very important, important court case that will have a lot of ramifications for uh, schools and their acceptance of homosexuality in their institutions for years to come. And God has given us the privilege of being in the center of this debate. So remember to pray for our school. Last question. Where can I find hope? Where can I find hope in my struggle with sexual sin? I'm not just talking about homosexual sin, but sexual sin in general. Because you know what? Why homosexuals struggle with sexual sin, so do we, don't we? We struggle with our heterosexual sin. And here's what the Scriptures say. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who are practicing homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on and says this, and such were some of you. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you are struggling with sexual sin, that may not necessarily even be homosexual sin. It may be heterosexual sin. Repent of your sin. Confess it to Jesus. 
not only will you be legally forgiven of your sin, but the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that God's Holy Spirit will come into us and He will make each one of us a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old will be gone, the new has come. And whether that's all at once or whether that's inch by inch, little sexual struggle at a time over years, God will remake your sexuality into something that is pleasing and honorable to Jesus Christ. Will you still struggle? Yeah. But He can change homosexual orientation to heterosexual orientation. That happens many times. He can change those who are sex addicts to those who have their sexuality in a God-glorifying place. He can change those who are struggling with sexuality outside of the marriage context to celibacy and to keep their marriage to delight with it inside of the marriage context. God, is the, His Spirit, is the power to change us and to sanctify us. Thank goodness it's not just about us and our strength, but it's about Jesus Christ and His transforming power at work inside of each one of us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we come before You. We want to especially thank You that you, your, your death on the cross is more than enough to atone for even the most heinous sexual sins. Thank You that it's more than enough to atone for those who have been persistently practicing homosexuality. And it's more than enough to atone for those who have been persistently practicing heterosexual sin. And we confess our sin. You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to transform us, to make us into new people on the inside as we live in dependence upon You and Your Holy Spirit. May walk with Christ. So I pray right now for everyone in this room who is struggling with heterosexual sin or even if there are some struggling with homosexual sin. I pray for repentance and new trust and new leaning upon you, Jesus, each and every day. And I also pray for our own school, Trinity Western. I pray that you would be with the legal team and you would be uh, upon this whole legal battle. Thank you for the privilege of carrying the mantle of this landmark decision in Canada. I pray that we as a church would carry it well and that we would not bend. We know, as I was talking after first service, that the Gideons, that the Canadian Gideon Society did bend. And as such, the um, American Gideon Society has separated from them because of it. We pray that you would give our school strength and courage, even though it may cost, them, cost us dearly in the midst of this battle for truth and righteousness. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.